morning and welcome again to uh, Redeemer. We're glad you're here uh, and you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, maybe a little soggy and gray outside, but it's a wonderful place to be in here, so glad you're here. Reach in the worship folder, if you would, and pull out the communication card that looks like this and uh, let us know that you're with us this morning. We'd appreciate that very much. Um, on the back, there's room for prayer concerns or other information you may need to share with our staff, so drop it in the offering plate at the end of uh, the service uh, today. We're continuing our teaching series called Something Greater, and uh, we've been looking at some passages of Scripture in the Old Testament book of First Kings and God's prophet by the name of Elijah. Today we come to a story that's really kind of the high point of Elijah's life, and it's his um, confrontation with all of the pagan gods of Baal and uh, which one would be the, uh, determined to be the true God? Would it be the pagan gods uh, that Israel was worshiping or would it be uh, Jehovah God? You see, in, uh, Israel had moved a long way away from God and their defiance was linked specifically to this pagan god, Baal. And to the pagans, Baal was a god to whom they sacrificed their children, uh, before whom they practiced sexual immorality. Uh, Baal was the... Uh, was the anti-God. He was the substitute of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we're going to be um, looking at a very powerful story uh, from this uh, Old Testament book of First Kings, chapter 18. God of hope, we come into your presence uh, this morning with confidence that you will meet us here. Uh, where there is sadness, bring joy. Where there is tiredness, bring refreshment. Where there is despair, bring a renewed sense of hope. And let this place be a sanctuary, a safe haven, a home for holy words and songs and prayers as we devote ourselves entirely to you uh, this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I very much appreciate what a mother and a father bring to the development and health of a family in our world today, we don't always have that situation where there are two loving, nurturing parents in every household. Some of you uh, have been or are single parents raising kids. You absolutely love your kids. You do the very best job of parenting that you can do. I also know that in some two-parent homes, mom and dad are not necessarily always on the same page when it comes to the values that they're teaching or in taking an active role in the spiritual development of their family. Sometimes it's mom alone, sometimes it's dad alone who are le who's leading and guiding the religious life of the household. Now, far too often the role of the, uh, spiritual development in the church and in our homes has been turned over to mom. Uh, that's the way it is in our culture. There are far fewer men uh, involved in like teaching and helping in Sunday school in most churches than there are women. Far too many dads who don't make it a priority to be a leader in their own home when it comes to faith development of their kids, uh, like somehow that's not the manly thing to do. Author and pastor Tony Evans once said, as goes the man, so goes the family. If you want to change the family, change the man. Now, the way he expresses himself in this thought may not be popular language in our culture today, but I know that what he's, what he's trying to say. Studies show that if a child is the first one in a family uh, to, to put their faith in Jesus Christ, there's about a 3.5% chance that everyone else in the household will follow. If it's mom who's the first one in a family to put their faith in Christ, there's about a 17% chance 
that others in the household will follow. If it's dad who is the first to put their faith in Christ in a, in a family, there is a 93% chance that everyone else in the household will follow suit. That is dramatic. There are certain things in life that we just have to make a choice on, even though it often feels easier sometimes not to make a choice. If you've ever ordered tickets from Ticketmaster, you know that you have about two minutes from the time you request your number of tickets to make all the rest of your decisions before the system kicks you off and cancels your order. There's no time to second guess yourself. You know, am I sure that this date is going to work? Uh, do I want the mezzanine level? What is the mezzanine level anyway? Uh, all those kinds of decisions. Two minutes. Sometimes I'd rather uh, them simply say, here's the price, we'll tell you where to sit when you get here. Uh, that would make it easier. Sometimes it feels easier to not make a choice, doesn't it? But then not to make a choice becomes in itself a choice. At least that's what a man by the name of William James said many years ago when he said, when you have to make a choice and don't make it, that in itself is a choice. Well, the story that we're looking at today, uh, the nation of Israel was at a place in their history where they had to make a choice in regard to God. They had been functioning without really making one. They had been um, uh, functioning uh, by just kind of uh, following all the gods of the world around them. A little of this and a little of that. And Elijah is, is God's prophet, and he's going to say to them, you have to make a choice about God. You have to make a choice about which God you're going to serve. And to not make a decision is itself a decision. Now, this is where a lot of people, I think, are with God today. Maybe even some of us sitting in this room. You've not rejected God, but you haven't necessarily chosen him either. You're not all in if you've rejected God, you probably wouldn't be here, but you're not all in for God. Let me give you some background on our text this morning. It's from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 18. Israel has been in a downward spiral for many years in which they'd begun to worship, as I said, a lot of the other gods of the culture besides the one true God, Jehovah. And the king is a guy by the name of Ahab, and Ahab is a spineless wimp. On the one hand, he's kind of a worshiper of Jehovah. He gives his kids uh, God-honoring names, and names are significant in these days. Uh, he names his kids Azariah, which means owned by Jehovah, and Jehoram, which means Jehovah is exalted. But on the other hand, he chooses for his wife the wicked witch of the West, Je Jezebel, who is fully committed to all the pagan gods Baal, and she has a lot of God's prophets killed while she's trying to make Baal religion, the state religion. And her husband Ahab, he's sitting back doing nothing about it. He was not the spiritual leader in his family. So God raises up the prophet Elijah, and his mission is to show that there is only one God, and that is Jehovah and to call Israel back to God. And Elijah's name in Hebrew means the Lord is God. His whole life's mission is to show what, what is distinctive about Jehovah and what makes him different from all the other gods. So we come today to this epic battle on the top of a mountain 
All the stories that we've looked at in Elijah's life have been leading to this one scene. Is there one God or is there many gods? Now remember, there wasn't just one Baal. There were many Baals. Baal was a common name for the pagan gods of health and success and fertility and rain and power, just about everything. And I like it how sometimes we think as we read this story, well, just look at those silly, primitive people. You know, with all their gods, and we're far advanced from them. And yet, you know what? We worship the same gods they do. We worship sex and prosperity and family and sports and leisure. And we, they at least recognize that all of these things had the ability um, to grab hold of their souls and consume them, that there was a spiritual dimension to all of these gods they worshipped. We often don't recognize that, which makes them, in many ways, ahead of us. You see, all of us are worshipers. We all find something in our life to which we assign ultimate worth, which is exactly what worship is. It's something that defines us, something uh, without which we could feel like we can't be happy, that life is not worth living. And you say, well, that's not me. I'm not a worshiper. I'm not even religious. Then you don't understand how your soul works. You might not be religious in a traditional sense, but you've found something in your life that gives you worth, something that makes life worth living. And you begin to worship that. You have to have it. You can't turn off your drive for worship by just not being religious. That's not how worship works. An idol is something, it's anything that has taken um, on ultimate worth for you. You can't imagine your life without it. It, instead of God, becomes your primary security. You're a primary sense of fulfillment and identity. An idol is not usually a bad thing. It's often a good thing that we make into a God. Now, for many people, money is the primary force, uh, form of security. Nothing wrong with money, but it becomes that thing that we all have to have at any cost. We're worried about it all the time. We won't obey God and be generous or tithe our income, but we'll work long hours, seven days a week if we have to, even sacrifice our integrity and sometimes our family to get more of it. For others, family is the fulfillment. We can't imagine being happy in a life being single or without the perfect family structure or the kids all living nearby us. We put so much weight on it that we are constantly unhappy and bitter at the fact that we don't have the family we always dreamed about or bitter at how, how our family has neglected us. Some people find their identity in their accomplishments. At one time, there was a pastor in our area who every time a group of clergy were together, he would be asking things like, well, what was your Sunday attendance yesterday at worship? What was the offering at your church yesterday? See, for him, he was always comparing, never satisfied with where God had placed him. But today, we do worship a lot of things. We worship sports, leisure, activities, exercise, food, See, an idol is anything that comes between us and our full devotion to God. In our day, there are hundreds of false gods. 
just like there were in Elijah's day. The reformer John Calvin used to say that the human heart is an idle factory. Some of us have been have as many bales in our heart as Jezebel had put in all of Israel. So don't think this battle is not relevant to our story today because this story is, is, is a story about the battle for the human heart. Let's look at our story in 1 Kings, it's chapter 18, beginning with verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he exclaimed, so it's really you, you troublemaker of Israel. Now, troublemaker means a person who wreaks havoc, who brings a plague. He's saying to Elijah, there you are, you plague, you canker sore on humanity. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replies. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asheroth who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. And then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver? He's speaking to the whole nation. How much longer will you waver between two opinions, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Now Elijah is calling out the nation of Israel for being not fully committed in, to either God or to the pagan god Baal. And he's telling them that some things in life require a decision, and to not decide is itself a decision. But the Israelites are just choosing to kind of hobble along, to limp along intellectually, just as we are if we believe that all religions are the same. So basically, if this, if Elijah were here today, he would be saying to us something like, if money is your God, then serve it with all of your heart. Go get all of you can, even if you have to cheat people to get it. If you sacrifice your family in the process, or your integrity, so be it. Don't ever give it away. Make sure you have all the toys you want. Make sure your kids have all the extracurricular activities that they can, can have. And after all, that's what being a good parent is all about. And if the approval of people in, is your God, then by all means, please, and do whatever you have to do to get other people to approve of you. If romance is your God, then go wherever you have to go to find it, even if, even if you have to leave your marriage. Forget about your responsibilities to your family. It's all about you. Make your fantasies come true. And if leisure is your God, then don't worry about missing worship. You can worship just as well in a deer blind or on the sidelines of a soccer field or in the middle of the lake with a fishing pole in your hand. After all, you work hard all week. You need your time away. It's all about you anyway. But if Christ is the one, if Christ is the true God, then serve him with all of your heart. See, Elijah's speech to the nation was really relevant to us today. And his question, how long will you continue to limp between two opinions? So many Christians today are trying to, I think, be a little bit in the world and a little bit into God. But you know what? Church is a terrible hobby. <laughs> For some people, it's coming to a place where it's 
kind of crowded some days. It's singing songs we don't necessarily like to sing, listening to a teaching for a whole 25 minutes, and going home feeling challenged, maybe even a little guilty. Not a fun hobby, right? It's a waste of a perfectly good day if you don't love Jesus. Let's look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who's left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The, Lord, the prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. And then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls, placed it on the altar, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. And then they danced, and they hobbled around the altar that they had made. Now listen to this. This is awesome. Verse 27. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Maybe he's just out relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out and they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Let's pause there for a moment and talk about the characteristics of a false god. See, the thinking of Elijah's day was that if people just obeyed their gods well enough, those gods would accept them. But they required strenuous effort to please the gods. And if they failed, the gods would crush them. You see, false gods say if you succeed well enough, you'll be happy. If you get into the right school, if you get the right job, if you make a lot of money, if you look beautiful, you'll be happy. And they keep pushing us for more. Work harder, do better, obtain more. And to appease these gods, we begin to cut ourselves, not literally, but figuratively. What do we do? We go on crash diets to have the perfect body. We overwork ourselves to have more money. We compromise our integrity to succeed how do you know there are false gods, false idols in your life? It's pretty simple. Look at your behaviors. Look at your bank statement. Look at your schedule. Now picture this. During, during all this ranting and raving, Elijah is just sitting over there on his lawn chair. He's got his shades on. He's sipping an iced tea, and he's talking smack to these prophets of Baal. Verse 30. Then Elijah calls to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. 
So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have uh, done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried, O Lord, uh, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. So how do we know the true God from a false God? Well, in Elijah's words, first, false gods require strenuous effort. But the true God is known by grace through faith. See, the prophets of Baal danced wildly to try to get Baal's attention. Elijah just simply prayed in faith. And the gospel, you see, is unlike any other religion. Most religions offer acceptance based on our obedience. Jesus turned that whole system of religion on its head and talked about how our obedience to God is a loving response for already being accepted. Secondly, false gods mutilate people, but the true God mutilated himself for us. The false prophets cut themselves to get Baal's attention. Jesus was wounded for us. There's a very illuminating picture in Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter, where Jesus and the the apostles are are rejected in Samaria, and the disciples are saying to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah to show them that you're the one true God? And Jesus rebukes them, and he says, you don't get it. They misinterpreted the meaning of this Old Testament story. And here's what he's trying to get them to understand. Jesus isn't Elijah calling down fire. He is the sacrifice who will receive the fire of God's judgment. See, Jesus took into his own body the fire of God's justice so that we could take into our life the fire of God's love. And other gods say, dance for me, slash for me. There's only one God who was slashed for us. Every other God will make your blood run The one true God is the one who has bled for us. Third, false gods are ultimately powerless, but the true God answers by a miracle. Now, we may be tempted to think that wouldn't it be great if God would do the same kinds of things today as he did there on Mount Carmel, you know, have God start a fire, have God do something impossible like dry up a lake or split the ocean, or maybe even let the Detroit Lions get into the Super Bowl some year. But the greatest miracle was the resurrection. When God raised a person from the dead, something no other God, no other religion has ever been able to do. Now remember the excessive conditions Elijah created to make this fire improbable. He poured 12 huge jugs of water on the altar so that covered the altar, filled the moat around the altar, saturated everything, and the fire of God burned it all up. Not just the offering, but the wood, the stones, the dust, the water, every bit of it. Jesus was not just killed. His body was mutilated. 
After he died, his heart was pierced through with a spear so that blood and water flowed out. He laid in a grave. They put a big heavy stone, sealed the tomb. A Roman garrison stood out front to keep people out. And God answered not by start restarting Jesus' heart, but as Romans 1 says, by raising Jesus in power and great glory. So that the stone was rolled away. The scared Roman guards passed out, and Jesus presented himself to the disciples by walking through a wall. Maybe God was just showing off a little bit with that last part, but Jesus did not defeat, just defeat death. He demolished it. And the greatest miracle is not fire falling from heaven, but Jesus rising from death. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, the story of Pentecost, the spirit of the resurrection, comes into the hearts of those first century believers. And how, does, how do they show it? Uh, God puts fire on their heads, and believers have uh, the same resurrection power in us, surging inside of us. The power of a changed life is, the pow- is a testimony to God's power. When our life is changed by Jesus Christ, that God's power is seen in us. And then fourth and finally, false gods lead to a thirsty soul. But the true God pours living water on his people. You see, the land had been thirsty for three and a half years. There had been a drought, been a famine, and now it was flowing with water. And this, this is kind of hard to describe. But you know it after you've experienced it. When Jesus Christ comes into our life, when we're all in, there is a sense in which we have come home to God. And we know this is where we've always belonged. This is what we've always been searching for. This is the country for which we've always been homesick. And the joy and the peace and the new life and the the hope begins to flow freely from our parched soul. Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only God that if you find him, he will satisfy you. And if you fail him, he will forgive you. See, other gods may be satisfied for a moment, but in the end, they're going to leave you thirstier. Other gods like Allah crush you if you fail them. The Buddhist god or system of reality, if you disobey, you have bad karma forever. The secular gods of popularity and beauty and money say, get me and I'll make you happy, but if you fail me, you'll be miserable. But Jesus says, you've already failed me, but I forgive you. And I receive you not on the basis of anything you've done, but the price I have paid for your salvation. Now watch this ending. Then Elijah says to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty storm, rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but uh, Elijah climbed onto the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked out and then returned to Elijah and said, I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab. Tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Now remember, this is three and a half years of drought, and now the rain's coming. And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance to the town of Jezreel. Now, I love this little detail in the story. 
Elijah outruns the chariots. He outran a horse. Why that detail? Compare that with the, his admonition earlier that they were limping along. They were limping along. Later in the book of Elijah, or in Elijah's uh, uh, life, the prophet Isaiah would write uh, that those who wait for the Lord will mount up as, with wings as an eagle. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. You see, when we make this decision to follow Jesus, we no longer will limp along in the land of indecision. We begin to soar. It doesn't mean we'll always feel stronger, but rather than limping along in indecision, we will begin to exercise daring faith, exuberant joy, extravagant uh, sacrifice in our life in order to, uh, to do what we need to do to be all in for God. And that's what I'm praying for all of you. I invite you today to get all in. How long will you limp along between two opinions? It's time to choose. Let's pray. God, we come together today from many places, whether that be physical or emotional or spiritual, but we come to be united here. Uh, some of us may have come today with a broken heart or just needed to be lifted up in their spirit. And we find a God here today who's meeting us in our celebration, who redeems us, who desires that we be fully present with him in this moment to recognize him as we gather at his table. 